The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. Uh, Last week, we finished up our outreach training, and we went over the final lesson that dealt with people that bring up an objection uh, to the gospel over the uh, theory of evolution. And what we learned in that last session, as we watched one of those videos, is that that kind of a question does not come up very often, but it's good to know how to handle it if it does, and good to know the arguments that... Uh, people use, and it's good for us to be reminded that evolution absolutely is not true. But since the middle to the late 19th century, uh, evolution has become a prevalent teaching, as you well know. Uh, Scientists today accept that as no longer as theory, but as fact, and they made that leap from theory to fact without the usual scientific insistence that there be absolute empirical evidence that a theory is true before they accept that it's true. Now, that's an odd thing about the theory of evolution. But as I know and you know, uh, evolution is not true, or if evolution is true, the Bible is not true. And if the Bible is true, that tells us that evolution absolutely cannot be true. The Bible shows us and uh, creation shows us that there is a creator and the creator is perfectly able to create his creation in a literal six-day creation just like we read in the book of Genesis. That's not a problem for God. But the problem, of course, lies with the scientist who fails to admit that God created everything because if he does, he must admit that we all must submit to the God who created everything. Now, the book of Genesis is, of course, a wonderful retelling. Uh, It is the main scripture that we use to deal with the creation of the world because there it splits us out, splits it all out, and gives us the actually what occurred on the six days that God created the world. And it's well worth our study to go to the book of Genesis to discuss that but I'm not going to go there tonight. Instead, I'd like you to take you to, uh, take you to, I'd like to take you to Psalm chapter 19, where David here makes a twofold argument for the existence of God, the reality of God. He declares the reality of God from two different perspectives. So this message will help us not only with the theory of evolution, but also, uh, more importantly, perhaps, with the religion of atheism as we see how that God does reveal that he is real. So we want to read the first 11 verses of Psalm chapter 19, and I'm sure it's quite familiar to you, Uh, a great psalm that David wrote. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, in the message tonight, we'll go back over, uh, maybe repeat some things that were said in the last couple of videos, and um, maybe not say exactly the same things, but bring up some of the same types of uh, information that we saw in those about uh, how we know that God is real. Uh, and as, as I was growing up, uh, I, I was very interested, and I still am, in the science of astronomy. And to go out at night, on a clear night, and just look up in the sky and see the magnificence of the, of the creation, to see the what God has placed there in the heavens is just mind-boggling. I mean, it's just overwhelming to think what God has done. Now, you, you've been taught, as well as I was when you went to school, that what we see with the naked eye is just a very minute portion of the observable universe. That if you go out on a high place, maybe a mountain, maybe Sonoma Mountain over here on a very clear night, that you're able to... Uh, they tell us, I've never tried to do it, but they tell us that you can count about 3,000 stars in the heavens uh, on a clear night. Um, I don't know if you want to try that or not and see if that is actually true, but if you do, we'll welcome you to stand on top of the church building night and count as many as you can and then give a report on that on Sunday morning. But w that's what we're told, that there's about 3,000 stars that you can see with the naked eye. Well, if you were at a different position on the earth, if you were, or rather in the heavens or whatever, at the vantage point of the Hubble telescope, you would actually be able to count thousands and thousands of stars, and you'd still be only looking at a very, very small part of this universe. Now, it's just, as I said, a mind-boggling thing to think about what God has created, and the entire universe, the Bible tells us, is one of the ways that we know that God is real. As Ray Comfort says, a building is proof that there is a builder, and uh, a creator is proof that a creation is proof there is a creator. And make sure you get the emphasis on the right syllables there, so you say that so it has its right effect. But Psalm 19 is one of these places that we have in the Bible that shows us or tells us that God is real because God has revealed himself in two very distinct, powerful ways. This particular psalm is divided into two sections that reveal the reality of God. And so we're going to talk about that some tonight as I speak to you about how that I know that my God is real. Well, the first way that I know is this overwhelming thing that we've just been talking about, and that is that my God is real in his creation. That the first way that God has communicated his reality to us is through the silent sign language of creation. Now, if you look at verse number 1 again, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. 
And when the Bible there speaks about the heavens, it is speaking of the celestial bodies. Uh, It means the stars and the planets, the asteroids and the moons. All of those things make up what the Bible calls the heavens. And that's one of the ways that God proves that he is real. Now, I just mentioned to you a moment ago there that we have the witness of the stars. That's one of the first ways that we know that God is real. We can go out on that moonless night and we can count thousands of stars that are in the universe. Or we can go up on that high place where there's a mountain and and count stars there. Or we could look through telescopes and we see that there are just these thousands and thousands of stars that God has put in the universe. And an amazing thing about those stars is, is how far away they are from us. I mean, that, that is just, uh, how can you even picture, the, uh, imagine the, the distances that there, that, there, that there are in the universe between the heavenly bodies that God has placed there. Now, they tell us that the closest star to us is the star Alpha Centauri, that is the closest one to our solar system besides our sun itself, that the closest star is Alpha Centauri. And it would take four light years, which is the distance that light travels in a year at 186,000 miles per second. It takes four light years for that star's light to reach the earth. So that means when you go out tonight and you locate Alpha Centauri in the sky, that when you see it, the light that you see actually left the star in the year 2009 and traveled all that distance at 186,000 miles per second to get here, and we're just seeing it today. How big is God? And that's just one star, the closest star that there is. Now, since they put the Hubble telescope up, and it's just, I don't know if you ever get a chance to look at uh, newspapers or USA Today online or something like that, where they occasionally on, on the scientific pages, they'll have pictures that have been taken by the telescope, and they just display those, a different uh, phenomena that we have in the heavens. And it's really, uh, since they put that up there, they've looked further and further and further out in the space. They keep making all of these discoveries, and they see that the universe is going on and on and on and on. And we think about that one star, Alpha Centauri, that's closest to us. That is a star that's in our galaxy. And the scientists tell us that there are actually billions of galaxies that are out there with billions of stars that are in those galaxies. And it's, we just can't get to the end of it, what God has created. Now, our galaxy is one of the smaller ones, and yet to travel across our galaxy at the speed of light would take you 80,000 years just to get across our home in the universe. That's just beyond our imagination. Now, here's something else that we know. We know that the entire universe is in a rapid state of expansion. And that means that the stars that you see out there are not stationary, but they're actually moving away from us at thousands of miles per second. And then we think about the magnitude of those stars. There just, there just can't be a doubt of what the Bible means when it says the heavens declare the glory of God. But in spite of what we see, there are still a lot of people that are sincerely asking some very important questions. They still want to know, is God real? Is God real or is he just something that we have invented in our minds 
in order to give us a purpose in life, to give us something to do? Is there really an intelligent power out there that created me? You know, this is something, in the past couple of weeks, I don't know when this has happened to me, but I've had in the past couple of weeks two calls from people that, that wanted to talk to me about whether there was a purpose for their life. One fellow called me just the other day and says, I, I feel like there has to be a purpose for my life. And I, you know me, it wouldn't take me long to answer that question. I said, yes, I can tell you there's a purpose for your life. Now, he was telling me about some dream that he had, and, and uh, this is what got him to thinking, is there a purpose for life? And I said, yes, there's absolutely a purpose for your life. Your purpose is to glorify God. You know that, and you all know that, I know that. The purpose of our life is to glorify God. Everything centers in glorifying God. But people want to know this. They want to know things like this. Is God real? Is there a purpose in life? Or is it just as the scientist said, that we're just the product of random happenings, that chemicals came together and life began and our ancestors crawled out of some primordial ooze? And that just tells you, if you have a belief like that, no, there is no meaning to life. There, there is no purpose. Life just happened. There is no purpose for it, is there? Uh, We do have a creator God who created us, and there definitely is a purpose for our being. So people wonder about that, and scientists know that the universe is expanding, and so they they propose that the universe uh, began with a big bang where a dense particle of matter exploded. Now, that's why they came up with the big bang, because when they saw that the things were moving away from us, they said, well, something must have caused that. And so they surmised that there was this one little particle that blew up. And since then, everything has been moving from that central force of the explosion. But when they came up with the big bang theory, there were serious scientists who doubted it because it put some holes into some of their other theories that they had. Scientists like Albert Einstein argued against it because not arguing for the existence of God, but argued against it because if the Big Bang is true, that little dense part of matter had to come from somewhere. It meant that matter is not eternal. Now, I can't even understand how a rational scientist believes that eternal, that matter is eternal. But nonetheless, that's what they thought for a long, long time. And so now, since they have the Big Bang, they've got to figure out where that little bitty particle came from that exploded. And so what happens that the further that the scientists get into science and the more things that they discover, though what they discover does not lead them away from God, instead it leads them right toward him. All the time, everything that they, that they begin to learn, when they, when they figure, start to figure things out in the right way, it leads them towards the existence of God and leads them with trying to explain away how God couldn't have done it. Robert Jastrow, who was the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, wrote this. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. You know, it would be much, much simpler if the scientists would go out just as David did and sit under the stars and look up into the heavens and wonder, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Well, do you ever wonder how scientists devise or come up with the theories that they, they tell us about? 
Maybe you remember this story that I told you a few years ago. I think it pretty well depicts how scientists come up with some of their theories, I believe. And this is the story about the, the uh, scientist who was studying frogs to see how far that frogs could jump. And I don't know, he may have been from Angel's Camp in Calaveras County, and he needed to know that information. But he was studying this out to find out how far that frogs could jump. So he put a frog down on a line, and he said to the frog, Jump, frog! And that frog jumped two feet. And so he wrote it down in his journal very carefully, meticulously, that a frog jumps two feet. Then he cut off one of the frog's legs. And he said to the frog, jump frog, and the frog jumped a foot and a half. So he recorded it in his scientific journal. A three-legged frog jumps one and a half feet. Then he cut off another leg. And he said to the frog, jump frog, poor frog, that's what we're probably thinking right now, but uh, here he says, jump frog, and this frog jumped a foot. So he wrote down in his journal that a two-legged frog jumps one foot. Well, then he cut off three legs of the frog. And so he put the frog down on the line, and he said, Jump, frog. And that frog struggled and did everything that he could, and he jumped about six inches. And so he wrote down in his journal, A three-legged frog jumps a half of a foot. Then he cut off all of the frog's legs. And he put the frog down, and he said, Jump, frog. And the frog just sat there. And he said, Jump, frog. And the frog sat there, and he just yelled at the frog, Jump, frog! And the frog just sat there. So he wrote down in his journal, Frog with no legs goes deaf. You've got to appreciate that. After all that. that. I think it sometimes that's the way that people come up with these things. It's totally unreasonable when we could just say, God did that. Just, just believe what the Bible says. Just believe what the universe tells us because of what we can see. God did that. Well, in Bible times, um, you know, the Apostle Paul addressed this particular thing in Romans where he uh, talked about heathens who deny the existence of God, or, or rather not deny the existence of God, but are not aware of the true God and what he's created. And said, he said they make, they make gods of their They have gods of their own making. He called those people heathens. You know, when we think of heathens today, we think of somebody who's scientifically ignorant. That's a heathen to us now. But uh, the Bible times, a heathen was anyone who didn't know the true God. Anyone who didn't believe in the true God of the Bible, that was a heathen. Now, today, again, we think about, if we get maybe a, a little bit more into it, we think of a, maybe somebody over in Africa in a, in, a, in a tribal situation with a bone through its nose who's a washer, or jumping around a, a, some idol that he's made. That's a heathen. But no, the Bible's, Bible's pretty clear about this, that any person, I don't care who you are, the smartest person in the world, if he doesn't believe in the one true God, he is a heathen. And that's what these scientists are who deny what they can see so clearly with their eyes. They are heathens. Well, let's look at the next phrase of this verse. Uh, Here, David uses the word firmament, and that's a word that's used to refer to our atmosphere. So secondly, we have the witness of the skies. Uh, This existence of a perfectly balanced blanket of air provides for us clear evidence of God's wise design. Now, the air is suited for life on this planet. 
Did you know that if the atmosphere was much thinner, that all of those millions of meteors that enter the Earth's atmosphere and burn up would pass through the atmosphere and they would strike the Earth and they would leave the Earth pockmarked and cratered just like the moon? If the oxygen content of our air was much less than what it is, then every lightning bolt that struck the earth would explode like a bomb and catch everything on fire. And yet, if it was just a little bit more, had a little bit more oxygen content, fire couldn't even burn. If there was uh, a difference in the oxygen content, we wouldn't be able to breathe. If there's a difference in the, the atmosphere, then birds would not be able to fly. So why is it that everything that we have here is so perfectly tuned, so finely arranged, so it's just in perfect balance to support all kinds of life on the planet. Well, the reasonable explanation is that the skies witness the work of God's hand, that these are not random accidental occurrences that make the universe work. And when Jesus comes back to this earth and all of those people look up and they weren't believers in God and they cry out and they say, but we didn't have enough evidence to know that you're real, what Jesus will do is just point to the sky and point to the heavens and say the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. In the Guinness Book of World Records, there is a woman listed who is said to have the highest IQ of any person in the world. And uh, I don't remember, I don't have the name of this lady written down, but I've, I read her column almost every week when I see it. But in, she has a column in the Parade magazine in the newspaper. So if you get that, you get that uh, Parade magazine, you'll see her column from time to time. And this woman, who's supposed to be the smartest person in the world, highest IQ, was asked, suppose you were to make one change in the physical universe, what change would you make that would be most useful to mankind. And this woman said, I'm afraid that a change in one law in the physical universe would cause all the other laws to topple like dominoes. I mean, that is how God has so intricately designed the universe in order to perfectly support his creation. That doesn't happen by accident. The odds of that happening are astronomical, and no pun intended there. It just can't happen. And yet, scientists accept that this happened by chance when no rational science would accept these kind of probabilities for any other area of science. Any other area of science that had these kinds of improbabilities, scientists would simply say, impossible, it didn't happen. But you know something? They've got to get rid of God And so they accept those astronomical improbabilities and say that God didn't do this. Now look at verse number 2. Here David says, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now the next proof that God is real is the witness of silent speech. Now, that that seems odd, doesn't it, where it says day unto day uttereth speech? And yet we know from inanimate objects we don't really hear anything at all. But King David says that every day and every night the evidence of the Creator endlessly and eloquently proclaims all the proof that we need to know that God is real. Because no matter where you are on the planet, 
the God uses this very same universal sign language to let people know that we're not here by chance, not by accident, that we're products of a skillful mind and a loving heart. Now, in, in verse number 3, you'll notice there that the translators of the King James Bible added the word where to the text. Now, that there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And, and you also see that word is in italics. Well, you can scratch that word out because it's not in the Hebrew. It's a word that's not needed at all. Rather, David's point here is that day and night don't use speech or any kind of verbal language to express their message about God, and yet that message comes through loudly and clearly, even though it's conveyed to us silently, inaudibly, without any spoken words at all. It speaks so loudly that you have to hold your ears almost because it's so, it, it's, it shows us so clearly that God is real. So ears aren't actually needed to understand the message that God has given us. So it doesn't matter if you're deaf, you can hear the message that God has given of creation. Go a little bit further here. What else did David say about creation's declaration of God? Well, the last part of verse 4, down through verse 6, he says, "...in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race." His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Here, he's speaking about the witness of the sun. Now, these, these verses might be a little bit hard for you to understand, so we just translate it this way, that God has put the sun in the heavens, and the sun, like a mighty champion, runs across the heavens from one end to the other, one end of the sky to the other, and there is nothing in all the world in any place that escapes the heat of the sun. What do we know about the sun? Well, the sun is so big that if it were an empty sphere, God could put hundreds of earths inside of it, thousands of earths inside of it, and still rattle it around like a baby's rattle. Our sun is positioned a perfectly 93 million miles from the earth. If it was much closer, we would burn up. Much further away, we would freeze to death. Now here, David says that there isn't any place on the earth that escapes the penetrating rays of the sun. I mean, even if you live near the polar ice caps, even they get their share of the sun. Now I told you a moment ago that the deaf could hear the proclamation of the glory of God. Here, the blind can feel the heat of the sun. So even a blind man knows that God is real because he feels that that heat. He, he knows that there must be a great and powerful creator, a creator who does deserve all of our wonder and our glory and our praise. Is God real? Yes, because that silent language of creation says so. It echoes what Paul wrote in Romans 1.20. He said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what the creator of this world has done, he's left his fingerprints all over the creation. All of the evidence that we need is there that there is a God. And the only thing that people can do is choose to ignore God and the implications of everything that they see. And you know something? God knew that there were people who would do just that, that they would ignore everything that they see. 
Uh, we saw that in the videos, didn't we, when it talked about atheism and, about, and also uh, in the one about uh, evolution, that, he, that they talked to people that um, had no sensibility at all that God did these things, although it all exists and they still believe all the theories that have been proposed that rule God out. And God knew that people would do that. So what did God do to circumvent that problem? He decided to reveal himself in another way. And that's by giving his commands in the written word of God. So secondly, we see my God is real in his commands. Here is where we come to the witness of conscience. Now, this perfectly parallels what we observed in those uh, training videos that where we need to go is to man's conscience because that is what responds to God's commands. Now, we're going to look at the commands, only we're not going to break them all down and go through them like they did in the videos, but we're going to look at it from a little bit different perspective. Peter says something very interesting in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'd like you to turn to that place if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1 And what he says there has bearing on this next part of the psalm. So we'll turn there and we'll read that in just a moment. Uh, Peter, James, and John were taken up on a mountain with Christ. And there Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. And I hope you remember that story that we studied in Matthew chapter 17. And that, that occasion of Jesus being transfigured and the disciples seeing the glory of God was a very momentous occasion to the apostles, especially for Peter, and also John speaks of it as well. And Peter says something very interesting about it in verse number 16 of chapter 1 in Second Peter. He said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says that somebody else didn't tell us about this. This is not rumors that we heard. We were actually there, and we actually did see Jesus Christ transformed in a glorious persona. Jesus Christ transformed on the mountain. We are eyewitnesses of that. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also, listen, verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now the thing about this passage that is so interesting is that Peter saw the glory of God. I mean, he saw God's glory with his own eyes, which we would think is the most convincing evidence that you could possibly have. What you see with your own eyes should be convincing evidence. Yet we know what we just talked about. People see with their own eyes that there is a creation, and yet they deny there is a creator God. Peter says, I saw God's glory with my own eyes, and that is not the greatest evidence that God exists. Now the heavens, looking at them... They give us some detail about the majesty and the wonder of God. Some detail, but they don't show us God personally. The way that God comes to us personally is through the written word. And 
Peter calls that in verse 19 a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what you can see with your eyes is God's word. So not only has God given us this great abundance of silent revelation, but he's also broken through that silence of nature, and God has spoken to us audibly and clearly in the pages of the Bible. And the Bible is what God uses to speak to us, and that he speaks to us through the operation of the Holy Spirit in the words of Scripture. Now, there's a very important distinction between verses 1 through 6 in Psalm 19 and verses 7 through 11. Now, if you're back at Psalm chapter 19, you'll notice the word God in verse number 1, and that is the Hebrew word El. The Hebrew word El, that is the most generic name for God that you find in the Bible. And that's a word that's perfect for describing the general revelation of God in creation. But the word changes in verse number 7 to Lord. And as you know, when you see Lord written in all caps in your Bible, that is actually the name Jehovah. Jehovah is God's personal revelation. Now, where do we first see that? Well, we actually see it when God saw, or when rather Moses saw God or spoke to God in the burning bush. And do you remember that God said to Moses, he said, I'm going to give you my name. By this name, they've never even known me, never known me before. My people have never known me by this name. And he said, I am that I am. And that is Jehovah. That's the personal revelation of God. And this is what God gives through his word. Now, in the next part of the psalm, David speaks of this written revelation. If you look at verse 7 in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, what you have there is a perfectly advanced sequential argument for the revelation of God through the word. Now, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so that means that the Bible is different from any book that you will ever read. That the Bible has very special properties to it, that it speaks to you in a personal way, And when it speaks to you in this way, it leaves no doubt that God is real. Now, here's the difference. You know, a moment ago, I said that God left his fingerprints all over the creation. Well, here, when God gives you the personal revelation of the word and he speaks to your heart, he leaves footprints all over you. Now, he stomps all over everything, and you know he's been there. Now, what does David say about God's word? First of all, he says that God's word is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now there, the word perfect means complete. It means that it's not deficient in any way. It is an all-sufficient revelation. Now perhaps you've heard us speak of the Bible being plenarily inspired. That's what that word means. That it's all-sufficient revelation. It is perfect, absolutely complete. So what the Bible does then is it covers every area of your life. It leads you out of sin. It takes you through all of the problems that you have, and it enables you for a, an abundant spiritual life. It's perfect. David next says that God's word is sure. That means that God's word is trustworthy. 
that it gives you the way to eternal life that you can believe. You can believe what it says. And the Word tells us, as Paul said to Timothy, it will make you wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, the person that follows his own way is a fool, and that's why you have these bogus theories such as evolution, and they actually defy, as we say, I said a moment ago, the scientist's own belief in reasonable probabilities. So he sees the heavens, but he denies the glory that's behind it. God says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. He says that people are ever learning and never able to come to the truth. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Thirdly, David says, God's word is right. The statutes of the Lord are right. That does not mean right as opposed to wrong, but it means right as opposed to crooked and perverse. Now, what it actually is talking about is righteousness, that walking in righteousness rejoices the heart. Then David said, God's word is pure. That means that it's truth without admixture. Now you take a look at the writings of men that they say claim from God. The Mormons have theirs and the Jehovah Witnesses have theirs and the Seventh-day Adventists have some, the Christian scientists, Roman Catholics have them, Muslims, Buddhists. All, all of these religions claim to have something that came from God, that God said, but none of those things in any way compare to the Holy Scriptures. God's Word has been, is pure and has been perfectly preserved. It's a miracle book, a book that's written over 1,500 years of human history by about 40 different authors. Sometimes those authors never met each other. Most of the time they didn't. Some of them never even knew what the others wrote, and yet they perfectly agree in everything that they did write. So the Bible itself, just the existence of it, is a testimony to a divine inspiration. And then God promised that his word wouldn't fail. Jesus said heaven and earth would pass away, but God's word would not pass away. And today, we still have God's word perfectly preserved. Now, we believe that we have it in English in our King James Bible. It's the version that stood the test of time. And there have been many Bible versions that have come along in the past hundred years or so, some adding to the word of God, some taking away from it. But the word of God never changes. And if it did change like those modern versions do, then we would have no reason to trust what it has to say. God's Word can't change. You know, like the man on the video was asked, do you you have a Bible at home? And he said, yes, I have three different kinds. What does that do? It undermines the veracity of God's Word. So we just stick with the King James. Um, It was translated by the greatest linguistic scholars of all time, so I have no problem believing it. So all of these aspects of God's word point us to David's conclusion in verse number 10 that the Bible is to be cherished more than gold. 
The Bible is sweeter than anything you can take into your soul. The scriptures are a more sure word of prophecy. It's greater even than the testimony that God has put in the heavens of all those magnificent heavenly bodies. It is a more sure word of prophecy. And yet, as Christians ourselves, with all of the accolades that are given to it by the prophets, by the apostles, for some reason we're still not people of the word. God has given us the greatest thing that there is right here in this compact little thing that we can hold in our hands. And we don't have to travel 26 trillion miles to read it. It's right here, and yet we're not people of the word. As John Bunyan said, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that's our problem. Now, let's look at verses 10 and 11 as we finish. David says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now there in verse number 10, David gives the value of truth. He says, more to be desired than gold. That's a hard statement for a lot of people. I mean, living in a material society, the society that we live in, how many people would really believe that the Bible is more to be desired than what we gain materially? Now, I'm sure that if you were to ask those people in that 24-mile long line trying to get into the casino uh, last week, their value of the Word of God, would they trade it for what they were about to do? They probably would say no, wouldn't they? Because they don't value the word of God. If they did, they would be obeying his commandments, wouldn't they? But they put no value upon God's word. But the answer to this of why God's word is more valuable than gold is because God's word is so practical and so useful that you can't replace it with anything. That's how you determine value, isn't it? How rare is it? How rare is it? What does it take to get your hands on this thing? You know, gold becomes valuable because it's, a, it's, a, it's an element that you just don't go up and pick up everywhere. That, that raises the value of gold. Well, the Bible is something you can't get anyplace else but directly from God. Now, I'm not talking about going to the Bible. I'm going to the bookstore and buying your copy. I'm talking about this is so valuable because God himself gave it to us. No man could ever produce it. It's not found naturally upon the earth. It takes supernatural power to have it and to understand it. Nobody understands the Word of God without the working of the Holy Spirit in their heart, and that's why there's so many people that aren't saved. God has to work in their heart. Well, God's Word is valuable because it, it warns us what to stay away from. It keeps us from the danger of falling into sin. It warns us not to waste our time in all the meaningless pursuits of this life that bring us nothing but heartache and pain. And every command that we have in the Word of God is not there to restrict us, but it actually frees us. It frees us to live lives that are full of God's blessings. So God, God gives the rules, He gives the commandments, not to make our lives miserable, but to make our lives fruitful and productive more than they could ever be without it. Well, here's the last statement I'll give you for your listening sheet tonight. I think we got it on there. I hope we did. The godly are blessed in their godliness. I'm trying to hurry to get you out. Verse number 11, it says there, 
or it tells us that we're warned by the word, and then we keep the word, there's a great reward. Now, notice the way that it's put there. The verse does not say that he who keeps God's word is rewarded. Now, there's no truer statement could be made than that, but that's not the point that's made in this verse. It says, in keeping of them, there is great reward. What it's showing us here is a continuing action that while we keep doing God's commandments that are in the Word, we enjoy the blessing of it. In other words, it's telling us that righteousness is its own reward. And so if I could put it to you in another way, that living a wholesome, godly life feels good while you do it. Living for the Lord feels good while you do it. There's no experience like that. Now, the world's mantra, of course, is if it feels good, do it. But they apply it to all the worldly vices that they have, and they would never imagine for a minute that there could be joy in living for Christ and what he says to do. But Jesus said, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And you know the context of that verse? You know when he said that? He said it right after he had bent down and washed smelly, dirty feet. Now, can you imagine that anybody would say that? Well, you're, you're going to enjoy this. This is good. Uh, you'll be happy if you do these things. We would never believe that we could be happy washing smelly, dirty feet. But that's the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of living for the Lord. The world says what they will never do. They, they says we'll never do this. They never think that it's going to make them happy. But Christ said, Living the Christian life is the greatest joy that you'll ever have. Friends, God is real. I I took the title of this message actually from a song. Maybe you're familiar with it. My God is real, real in my soul. For he has washed and he has cleansed and made me whole. His love for me is like pure gold. My God is real, for I can feel him deep in my soul. Can you feel him? Feel him deep in your soul? Well, then that's a greater testimony than going out tonight and looking at all those stars. You know he's real when you can feel him in your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the the, the tremendous evidence that you've given us of the great God that you are. Uh, We so much appreciate the heavens and the handiwork and the beautiful place that you've given us to live. More and more important than that, is what you've given of the revelation in your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for the commands. We thank you, Lord, for the things that make us live lives that will be a blessing to ourselves and to others. And we thank you for eternal life in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're real in our soul, and we know that you're taking us to heaven when we leave here. So, Lord, bless, bless our people. We thank you for each and every one here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.